Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. So when we came up with this series idea, is China beyond the ends of the earth? We honestly didn't know that we'd hit upon an actual thing, but so it turns out in Chinese political discourse is called the strategic new frontiers, and they are in turn outer space, the deep sea, the polar regions, and finally cyberspace. And just purely by accident, that is exactly the order we've done this show in.、Um, so today we're tackling the fourth strategic new frontier: cyberspace, and in particular, cyberspace infrastructure. In April of this year, Reuters reported that a consortium of China's biggest telcos is building a $500 million subsea internet cable, effectively duplicating a U.S.-backed cable to link Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. The article said it was part of an intensifying tech war between Beijing and Washington that quote risks tearing the fabric of the internet. To discuss this, we're joined by Konstantinos Komaitis, a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and at the Lisbon Institute. As well as Julia Vu, the cyber fellow who leads the team at the Belfort Institute's National Cyber Power Index. I mean, Julia, let's start with you. We've been looking at this map by the telegeography website of subsea internet cables, and if you look at all of those connected to China, there's just a kind of mishmash all over Asia, in particular. I mean, tell us about China's undersea internet infrastructure. How far does it go? I love that map. When I first saw that map, like a few years ago, I was like, "This is so cool!" And anyway, one of the things that we should know about, I think, majority of the cable infrastructure around the world, is that I guess up until recently, it was、uh, dominated by suppliers、um, for, that were not Chinese. I think increasingly、um, in recent years,、um, China has become much more interested in that. But I think that, in a way, it is expected and natural, and it doesn't necessarily mean、um, that China will dominate or own or have total control over the aspects of that internet. It really depends on lots of different factors,、um, but I think it is an interesting data point that it is investing more in building or supporting the control and、um, manufacturing of undersea cables. In different parts of the world, Konstantinos, maybe a question for you.、Um, I mean, this whole idea about the vulnerability of these undersea cables, which is something I never really thought of,、um, has sort of come a, a bit front of mind after the the Nord Stream gas、um, sabotage incident, which leads to the thought: well, presumably these undersea cables are equally vulnerable to、uh, to sabotage. I mean, given that we now have this increased competition, and you have What looks like almost a parallel U.S. and China network of cables being built out. I mean, what are the possible ramifications of that in the future? In the context of the Chinese, I think that you made a very valid point,、uh, Graham. By sorry, Graeme,、uh, by、um, effectively saying that it was the Nord Stream、uh, pipe that put front and center this risk of geopolitical tension when it comes to global communications. The main problem with China, and at least the behavior that so far is exemplifying, is that it is viewing submarine cables not as natural components of this global mutually beneficial network, but as strategic assets. 
which could be tapped or severe in any future conflict. So this is sort of what distinguishes a little bit the Chinese, which of course, this is part of a much larger uh, strategic vision of how they see the internet and how they would like the internet to be governed. So even though we don't have concrete examples of huge geopolitical tensions, the, the possibilities are there, which create you know a little bit of uneasiness to a lot of people that are doing this uh, job and are following internet policy discussions. Julia, also a question for you. I mean, aside from the the thought that these cables are easily blown up, um, what other vulnerabilities does the internet, in terms of hardware, have have baked into it that states can exploit? I think the Nord Stream example is like a really good example of a threat to um, submarine cables. Um, at like one end of the spectrum. But I think that, you know, over, I think ever since submarine cables have been in place, they've been at risk of espionage. And so one of the reasons why um, I think the US and its allies are concerned of more Chinese companies being involved in submarine cables or landing points, for example, landing in Hong Kong is because of the risk that the Chinese government could collect more intelligence. So, for example, I think it was it in 2019 or the, 2017, there was a plan with a consortium of providers, not just a, a Chinese company, but also Facebook and Google um, to provide the Pacific Light Cable Network, which was going to connect um, LA to Hong Kong, Taiwan, the Philippines. It would have been the first one that crossed the Pacific Ocean. And it was at least the the docking point, the landing station in Hong Kong was um, scrutinized most heavily by the US Department of Justice because of the national security concerns. So I guess in addition to an attack against cables like the Nord Stream, there is the risk of data collection by adversarial governments. This example really is evident of the of those tensions. And of course, it was taken during the Trump administration, where, of course, we were seeing other actions being also taken against Chinese. This was the first time we heard about possibly banning TikTok within the United States. It was the same administration that, that, that did that. On top of everything, one of the one of the things that we are seeing is that as of 2019, for instance, more than 70% of African uh, nations and African and the African Union signed MOUs with Beijing on the Belt and Road Initiative, which essentially also includes laying down uh, cables. So uh, the Chinese have been very strategic and very smart in integrating this vision into this huge infrastructure project, which is the Belt and Road, which of course does, is not limited to just uh, the internet or cables, and it includes other forms of infrastructure, roads and bridges, uh, and so have it. But there we are actually seeing the culmination of the implementation of a vision, right, that started long ago. In the beginning, uh, the Chinese were laying down uh, cables more uh, as part of consortia, and they were doing internally R&D in order to try to identify how best to do it. And over the years, we've seen them actually doing it, implementing this vision, laying down uh, um, cables, and also allowing their own companies, which of course are accountable to the Chinese uh, state, to be doing that on their behalf. Louisa and I are having an argument about whether I can ask this question. We can cut it out. We can cut it out. It's just something I've, I've, it's, it's something I've been wanting to ask for a while. 
of people who actually know about these things. So just to ask a couple of people what's possible in terms of extracting data from these cables. So there was a situation I was made aware of in a certain Pacific state where the Chinese, um, shall we say, that the second tier Huawei ZTE um, had set up a base next to where the cable landed in this Pacific country. And the suspicion was that they had set up right next to the cable so that they could exfiltrate data from the cable. Can you do that? Or is this just, you know, kind of make-believe? And has this been done, I guess, is the other question. Um, I think that Julia might know more about this. To my knowledge, there hasn't been a recorded case that has made the news to the extent that we have a landing station where you know, there is this massive amount of surveillance is happening to the, uh, the way data uh, gets through that specific uh, location. But if you ask me, do I believe that this is happening in certain parts of the world? Yes, I think I, I think that yes, this is the case because it is the it's, it is the most effective and efficient way to actually monitor data if you want. There are other ways to do it, but they're more expensive and they are not as efficient. There you are in the source of where data goes through. So you can actually manipulate it. You can put whatever you want and you can create the conditions for full control over that way, uh, over the the information that gets passed through your uh, landing station. Yeah, absolutely. I would totally agree with Konstantinos. Um, and uh, even though there's no publicly available information, I guess, of a, of a country doing that, it would make um, total sense to do that. I think the other thing that you would need is the ability to pass through that information, because as um, I think maybe we've discussed, it's a huge amount of data traveling those cables, and it's going to be like a constant, right? So and you can't just go in, and you need to basically be able to siphon off and go through and find out what you need. Okay, I take it back. That was a really good question, Graham. Thank you. <laughs> um, so let's talk about that digital Silk Road. You know, I know that a lot of internet is also being provided through Chinese satellites and 10,000 villages. To what extent is sort of African internet access really being driven by um, China's digital Silk Road? Um, so I think we can see that China has prioritised providing telecommunications infrastructure of some sort to the global south. And I think you can see that, uh, as Constantinos mentioned, it has been delivered in a way like in, com in combination with their kind of development financing. Um, and it has obviously got huge strategic benefits. And China has kind of gone into poorer countries uh, in a way that the US and other European allies until recently wouldn't, because their development financing would be much more tied to democratic values or demonstrating democratic values or some kind of, you know, governance reform regime, whereas China kind of went in with a little bit more of like a no strings attached approach. And another aspect of that, I think, is that because of the subsidies that Chinese uh, companies are provided by from the Chinese government, their risk of doing business in these less stable markets is lessened. And that kind of factor taken out of it is actually makes this kind of less profitable environment uh, more appealing. And in contrast, Western companies probably wouldn't see the 
business viability of providing these services, which is not just providing the manufacturing and the hardware, but it's also the servicing on top of it. It's like a long term provision of infrastructure. And a lot of these markets are quite uh, volatile. And so, yes, China has made huge headways in um, developing countries and providing telecommunications infrastructure and compared to the US and its allies. So, I mean, maybe a question for both of you, just stepping back a little bit in terms of who's laying these cables and why that matters. I mean, does it matter for a would-be authoritarian state if it's Huawei Marine laying the cable or Nokia? Does who lays the cable or who, if you like, maintains the cable make a difference in terms of the data and who controls the data? In the context of China, it does. In the context of other countries, it does not. And the reason that I'm differentiating this is because this is the problem that TikTok has as well, right? I mean, you can stand up and you can say, no, we are not handing in any data to the government, to the Chinese government. And you can be very adamant with this and without evidence, you really cannot challenge this as much. However, there is this tiny yet very significant provision within the Chinese governance system where at any given point, the Chinese Communist Party can call any company and make them submit all the data and all the information that they want. And this is a a point that you cannot overcome when you're having these conversations, because ultimately it is a power that can be exercised. And the fact that it's not exercised, it's still enough in order to be able, you know, in order to make other countries and, and other stakeholders very nervous about the role that China could be playing. And that's why we're seeing gradually over the past three years in particular, this change in the policy of how we treat, you know, of how China uh, is being treated, either by the United States or even by the European Union. Of course, we see a spectrum of that, right, from the extremes to more moderate. But everyone now, I believe, starts to fully realize that this is something, this tiny detail of actually the government being able to demand things that you cannot overcome, especially when it comes to digital and online communications. Julia, how do you think the US and other countries drop the ball here? Why do you think they drop the ball? Why do I think that? I ask myself that question a lot. Um, Because, I mean, just from a development angle, like there's World Bank report on World Bank reports saying the more internet you have, you know, the better your GDP is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like just from a development perspective, why wasn't the US investing in Africa? I think one of the reasons why um, the UK, the US and other um, democratic governments dropped the ball is because of the nature of our governance systems, like kind of going for four year, five year elections. I think we're much more kind of short termist in our planning. Um, and also, I think it's just the, the tradition of our development financing and also this, the greater separation between the government and companies, the provision of subsidies that the CCP is very, you know, close with like Huawei and ZTE. That's not really something that we have done in, in developing countries. So if, if I may very quickly, I think it's a combination of different things. One is exactly what um, uh, Julia said, right? This whole idea of uh, high risk, very small returns for some of the companies in the West and the way they um, operate as opposed to Chinese. The other thing is, is a massive change within national governments, right? Remember, in 2016, the Trump administration came and suddenly many Western governments start looking at protectionism 
and they bounced back to protectionism um, uh, behavior that sought to enhance their own countries. So this idea of, oh, I'm going to invest in another country became less and less. The other thing is that in many ways, um, China caught the West, you know, asleep. This, what we're seeing right now in China in terms of implementation, and specifically when it comes to the internet, it has been, you know, it was constructed many, many years ago. In 2005, China released its vision for the internet. We all knew that this is happening, but nobody really took it seriously. And right now, we're having a China that is very strategic, it's very organized, and they know exactly what they want. And when it comes to the infrastructure, the other good thing that the Chinese strategic thing that they did is that they did not create infrastructure just for the internet, which inevitably would have received much more attention. But when you put it in a package of roads and bridges and buildings and, oh, and telecommunications equipment, ooh, and antennas, then it sort of get lost in this big narrative. And by the time the European Union and the G7 countries and the United States woke up, right, literally, there's currently everyone wants to go to China in order to be able to invest, but it's a little bit late, which brings me to my last point of this very complex issue of why the West has not really delved into Africa. It is the issue also of historical baggage, right? Colonialism is a word that we, digital colonialism, better yet, is a word that currently is emerging from Africa. And it's being referred to this idea that, oh, you're coming here to tell us how to do things. Because that was the way in the West we used to be doing things in Africa, not just digital, but overall. Oh, we know better. We'll come and tell you how to do things. China does not do that. And I think Julia said that in the beginning. It didn't come with attachments concerning ideology, uh, governance systems, or anything of sort. It came with, we can provide you this. Do you want it? And of course, they would say yes. Julia, I think this is the first time in the history of the show someone has been polite enough to raise their hand. So <laughs> I guess I spend a lot of my time saying that, um, you know, G7 countries or the US and its allies should be doing more um, in response to China and what it's trying to do um, to influence more of cyberspace and the internet. Um, but I would like to highlight that, you know, at least since Biden has come in and has been, you know, more open to collaborate, collaborating multilaterally, there have been efforts to construct a sort of um, you know, the G7 version of the Belt and Road through the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. Um, and that's meant to be collectively, I think, putting down around 600 billion into infrastructure in uh, developing uh, countries. Um, and that is uh, partly in response, well, definitely in response to China's efforts in this space. Konstantinos, you were talking about digital colonialism. And I just wanted to get you guys to expand a little bit on uh, China's version of cyber sovereignty, which is really that each, um, you know, the, the, the internet is a kind of sovereign domain rather than an amorphous open, open space, but each country has administration over its own internet. Is China, do you think, using this idea uh, of digital colonialism to push cyber sovereignty? And, and is it working? Well, Considering that China is the first nation that actually used the term cyber sovereignty, yes. 
this is a term that we are actually seeing currently emerging all across the world. It doesn't matter whether you're an authoritarian or a more democratic country. Countries are starting to get very much insistent on the idea that we need to have full control over A, uh, the policies and rules that underpin digital technologies, and also at the same time, the way technology evolves, uh, evolves within you know, uh, national borders. Europe, for instance, is all over this idea of digital sovereignty. They changed from cyber to digital because they wanted to distance themselves uh, with China. But at the end of the day, all of these narratives around sovereignty are based on this fundamental premise. We want control over what's going on uh, online. The, the problem with Africa is that everyone realizes right now that it is this untapped internet territory, meaning that the next development that is going to happen in the internet is going really to happen in Africa. The West has had its big run. China also has demonstrated through its own model that there can be a, another model of the internet that doesn't necessarily fit this narrative of open, global, interoperable, etc. And then there is Africa. And whichever model uh, passes through Africa in many ways is going also to determine the future of the internet. Because if Africa gets convinced that, oh, the model that we need to aspire to is more the Chinese one, then we are talking about a potential collapse of this idea of a global network of networks. We're already experiencing fragmentation, so this would just exacerbate it. And this whole idea of digital colonialism is, of course, something that they're piggybacking on. The African countries have said it over and over again that we're a little bit tired of having white people coming to us, telling us how to how best to do things. We want to explore things. And, I, and that is such a legitimate argument because especially in the internet that I'm more familiar uh, with, you know, even when it comes to laws, we used to go to Africa and tell them, you know what, this is the spam law that is going to work in you know, it worked in Europe, so you might as well have it. So we don't let them experiment. We have not let them explore. We have not let them play with the internet, which is the whole idea of the internet, right? In the internet, when we say the internet is open, it doesn't mean that anyone can go and say whatever the hell they want. Sure, they can do that in certain parts of the world, but it means that anyone can hook their network to the global network and be part of the internet. Whereas in China, you will need to go and ask for permission in order to do that from the Chinese state. This is the fundamental difference, and this is why Africa is becoming so crucial. And that is why it is encouraging, albeit a little bit late, I have to admit, that we're seeing the West, whether through the G7 or individually uh, the United States or the European Union, start thinking of infrastructure and investment because the... Open internet starts with infrastructure. By the time you have an infrastructure that is controlled by the state, you automatically have a model. It will lead to a model, whether it is businesses, whether it is the way users interact, whether it is the way government approaches the internet, that is going to top down. And the last point that I will make is, again, the Chinese government basically sponsored and gave money for the African Union, which is literally the body that holds, to an extent, all African countries together and makes them more united to build its building, right? After, after the, the building was constructed, they started, they realized that the building was backed by China. So this is what we are talking about. And it's not that every single building will be backed, but the potential is there. Julia, did you want to add to that? 
Yes. Uh, so when I think China's talking about cyber sovereignty, I think there are different elements to it. As Louisa mentioned, right, there's the path of cyber development and the kind of own regulatory model and design approach. And then there's also in terms of um, participating in international cyberspace governance, participating on an equal footing with other countries. And so that means, I think, in, in um, CCP speak is like more um, models of multilateralism as opposed to multi-stakeholderism. And a lot of internet governance today is, um, well, one, it's totally very decentralized, but the other is that it's uh, predominantly multi-stakeholder, which means that it's not just the government, there's industry, um, technical experts, um, civil society. But one point I'd like to make there on the multi-stakeholder point is that that is actually not super inclusive for representatives from developing countries, because going into these often volunteer, when talking about technical standards bodies here, going into these voluntary organizations where you're not necessarily paid to participate, that have very long meetings that are often in another part of the world, you need to not only have the technical expertise to participate at the same level, but you need to have the funding to do it. So even though in theory it's multi-stakeholder, the current model, and open to everyone, it's actually not. It's almost exactly the same as the polar regions. You know, in theory, anyone can set up a base in Antarctica, but who's got the money to build a base? Very small club. Um, I mean, talking about these sorts of organizations, not a volunteer organization, but a fascinating one nonetheless that no one had paid any attention to for the longest time, the, the International Telecommunications Union um, that had a general secretary, I think it was Chinese, elected twice unopposed. And suddenly, uh, I think it was last year, the U.S., um, instead of ignoring this body, uh, had the president barracking in uh, the US candidate to be the general secretary of this extremely obscure UN body. I mean, what, what's all the fuss about there? Can this UN body really make a difference to the internet? Yes. But don't expect the difference to be um, overnight or it's going to be so sudden and, and profound that it will change. You know, this is a UN body uh, and like all UN bodies, things work very slow and they're very bureaucratic and they take years and years in the making. Um, you know, a couple of things. First of all, it is the ITU always was and it will be one of the most relevant UN bodies. You know, it is it is where essentially the telecommunications development happened. The internet did not happen there because inevitably that would not fit within, you know, its agility and flexibility and would not fit um, or does not fit better yet within the UN system. But um, over the years, we, we have seen the Chinese going back to the point, the very correct point that Julia made that, you know, for them, it is about being on an equal footing and participating in this multilateral fora, the Chinese a couple of years ago uh, took their proposal for a new IP protocol, which is a standard basis, the basic protocol that allows the interoperation between networks to happen, and said, instead of going into these voluntary organizations, bottom-up, multi-stakeholder voluntary organizations, we want the ITU a member state organization to take on the responsibility of changing the protocol or um, to the way um, networks communicate. And even though, you know, the proposal didn't fly to the point of being into, you know, potentially a treaty or anything like that, it persists within the UN system for the past two years and is going around study groups, right? This So the ITU has this system where you have a lot of study groups where people 
discuss and themes and issues and blah, blah, blah. And whatever makes it out of a study group, it's elevated to the point of becoming some form of international law. The new IP proposal is stuck there, but still for the past couple of years, even though not a lot of people like it, it keeps on re-emerging with new additions, with new points, but it's still there. So I love the ITU. <laughs> Only on our show can we have these words. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been like looking at it like pretty closely. Um, a few things I just want to add in terms of like um, context. So one is in terms of the recommendations or technical standards that come out of the ITU, one of the reasons why they are important is because they are mentioned in the World Trade Organization, along with a couple of other organizations. So this means that when a country chooses to adopt an ITU technical standard or anything to do, like, then it is recognized as a consensus built standard and that is acceptable, right? According to the World Trade Organization. The other thing I wanted to mention about the ITU and why I think it's important when it comes to the internet and cyberspace, even though like uh, other organizations may be more important for developing like the technical standards that are actually used, is because kind of building on my earlier point, it is a multilateral organization, which means there are countries represented there that would not be at the other body. So there's really strong representation from developing countries. And so that is where you would act like you can go there and engage with them. So that's why I think it's important and why I think that G7 countries in particular, like really kind of going in on, we will only engage in like multi-stakeholder forums. But I think that they should if they wanted to reach across the divide or build more influence in spaces where China has influence, then it needs to reconsider its strategy in the ITU, not just be defensive, but also be proactive. Um, let me just um, jump in. I want to ask about a different forum, which is the World Internet Conference, which China set up, which first met in Wuhan nearly a decade ago with... Um, Apple's Tim Cook and Google's Sundar Pichai were all there with President Putin, Xi Jinping. Now it's evolved into an organization. I mean, how much of a role do you think that will play in internet governance? Is it a threat, do you think? The jury's still out on this. And incidentally, I wrote a piece about this uh, a few months ago. For me, it is a very interesting development because... And we don't have a lot of information. We don't know who's participating in this organization. We don't know exactly what this organization is going to be about. Uh, we have given we have been given some hints, but remember, this started as a conference which was trying to put China into the the global scene as a, a significant internet player. And after COVID, suddenly it was announced that it's becoming an organization that might actually be developing standards and it might be looking at different things of policies and harmonization of policies and so on and so forth. At this stage, again, we need to remember that the internet is based on private networks mainly, right? And you really need to have the market buying in order to make significant changes in the way the internet works. But this, so that, that's the good news. However, with China's technological competitiveness and as it continues to become more and more and more relevant globally, the scenario of using this World Internet Conference Organization to set the standards that China cannot get at the ITU or China cannot get at the ITF and actually create this consortium of different states that buy into the standards, as far as I'm concerned, is quite real. 
given that kind of global internet governance is very decentralized and there's no clear hierarchy, I kind of see the WIC as a just an, an additional forum for country for China to state its kind of model, the benefits of its model and convene potentially like like minded folks as to like, I, I think the the balance of the overall internet governance of bodies are obviously Western aligned. And so I think that this is just another kind of forum that China can have influence. So this is a question, I'm not sure whether it's for Constantinos or Julia, but um, we seem to elide acts that might look like from the China playbook, but when they occur in democracies, we kind of look the other way. So, you know, for example, in Modi's India, we had that case of, you know, basically Twitter's officers um, being forced physically to uh, comply with the censorship directions around a BBC documentary. Um, more subtly in Australia, we've had these data encryption laws that are just sort of sneak through without any particular comment whatsoever. I mean, we, we lazily think about the developing world um, having this model exported to them, but is it the case that a lot of democracies in their efforts to, quote, fix the internet are very tempted and, and to make the internet safe are adopting um, large parts of China's playbook? Well, I think that's a really good point, Graham. And and so I think that if we think about different models of internet governance, they all occur on a spectrum. And when, talk, when we're talking about like like-minded countries, I think there's like a lowest common denominator here of like what is common between them, but they're all kind of broadly on like one end of the spectrum. And so often when people talk about the global internet, it's a little bit of a misnomer because I think that fundamentally, Every state expects their national laws to be obeyed online, right? So there's an element of like balkanization all across different countries within the EU, within countries within the EU, the, the Aussies and do you say India as well. And so there's like different levels of fragmentation from the like policy level and the regulatory level. And I think that that's kind of important to remember. Even in, in democratic countries, they are seeing the um, risks of the internet, the kind of threats to democracy of the internet, are trying to introduce controls to some extent. The difference is, I think, that in de democracies, there are a few more checks and balances and there's maybe a greater separation between some like companies and the government to do that. I've been thinking recently about um, whether or not the Russian model, model of the internet or the Chinese model of the internet is more appealing to um, some other countries outside of democracies or in the developing world. And increasingly, I'm thinking that perhaps um, the Russian model would be more appealing. And that's for a few reasons. And one is just because it's kind of lower investment, like China started building the internet of today, uh, several decades, decades ago, and it's a huge kind of technological investment, as well as the kind of having the bureaucracy behind it and the manpower. And in terms of implementing any kind of model like that, I think it'd be incredibly difficult in um, developing countries. And it's easier to kind of pick up bits of the Russian model because until recently, was under a couple of years ago, well, last year, Facebook and Google, was it Twitter, could be accessed in Russia, but then they cut them out. And so I think actually, like, if you're going to pick up a model and have greater control of your internet, Russians may be easier than China. Konstantinos, I can see you're, you're, you're gagging to jump in there. The one thing that we need to understand is that the China model cannot be replicated really outside of China. Um, the only other country that could perhaps uh, we can, you know, consider or we can see having a similar model would be India because of the sheer size of population, right? I mean, China's model works because it has one plus billion people inside that are able to support it and create the economic conditions in order to be what it is. However, China also, through 
blood, sweat, and tears, is creating this idea of a harmonious society, which we cannot see in, in India, right? In India, you have, I don't know how many thousand dialects, I don't know how many different religions, and you cannot create this cohesive narrative that will have the buying of the citizens. So that is the first uh, thing. What China can do, however, and it does quite interestingly, is to export ideas that constitute independent ideas that in their totality create the Chinese internet. So China doesn't need to go and say, here is the Chinese internet, you take it and you make it. But China can go and say, oh, you want surveillance. These are some of the ways you can actually start implementing very effective surveillance, whether it is through um, the packet inspection or through other technologies. Do you want monitoring? This is what we have done in order to be able and filter what sort of content gets in and out of the country. And the last point that I will make is because, you know, Julia has been referring to the Russian uh, model. I sort of disagree with that. Uh, there is not a, a Russian model. Uh, Russia is part of the global internet. Julia is very right to say that over the past few years, the Russian government has been attempting to create the conditions for its internet to be more separate than the global internet. But unlike China, which is something also that Julia pointed out, that started very, very early on implementing the system, Russia woke up a little bit late. So the dependencies and the interdependencies that were created already are very, very difficult for Russia to overcome, meaning that China can disconnect itself from the internet because China has three uh, gateways, three international gateways to the global internet, all controlled by the three telecommunication providers and all controlled by the state. This is, again, not the case in Russia. The Russia's internet, a lot of its content, first of all, is hosted on servers outside of Russia. So Russia wouldn't even be able to access its own content if it wanted to. Right now, it's investing and it's creating some really sketchy technical governance regime where it says that I can disconnect myself or I can take down the monitoring, of course, and the filtering has increased, but Russia cannot disconnect itself from the global internet because of those very dependencies. So Julia, I want to ask you a question about your National Cyber Power Index. I mean, you've got China in there as number two, second only to the US. How far behind is it in your index? And when is it going to overtake the US as the world's biggest cyber power? Oh, God, that's a really tricky question. One of the things about the index is that it is based on open source material, right? So there's a whole lot of stuff that we could not include in the index. We take a very holistic perspective when it comes to cyber power. So it's not just destructive operations, offensive operations, defensive um cybersecurity, commercial, blah, blah, blah. It's like eight different factors, which includes like influence over cyber norms. And I think that there is going to be, actually, you know, let me, re let me reshape this. I basically don't really want to answer the question of when it's going to overtake America. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know. Well, I mean, is it far behind? So, no, it's like way above, way ahead of all the other states and closer to America than I think America would like. I'm, I'm, look, I'm very flattered that Australia finished fifth on that list, which I, I, I'm slightly perplexed by. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, really, fifth? Um, we always talk about punching above our weight, and I always feel like that is just the emptiest brag that, uh, that every sort of second-tier country has. But um, 
I, I'm keen for a, a sort of sum up question, if you like, from both of you looking forward, like what should we be looking out for in the future? I mean, is it possible that we are uh, heading towards a, a properly balkanized internet where things aren't interoperable as we assume they will be, you know, everything from financial transactions and so forth, that we could have two, if you like, separate internets, a US-led one and a Chinese-led one on different infrastructures. I mean, is that is that a possibility? The splinter net, if you like. <laughs> So currently we are talking about three internets, actually. We are talking about the Chinese internet, we're talking about the US model, and then we're talking about the European model. And this was brought forward in 2018 by then newly elected President Macron that stood up in front. I was there at the Internet Governance Forum and he literally said, there is a third way, and this is the European way where regulation sits at the core, but that regulation is designed according to the European slash friends uh, principles, you know. Um, So currently we are seeing those three internets. If I look into the future, uh, and I I have spent, funny enough, I'm spending quite some time thinking of that. I don't think that the the three internets necessarily will be uh, maintained. I think that we are moving towards more two internets. I don't also think that other countries will start saying, oh, I want my own model. I think that it's going to be two predominantly models, the Chinese and the um, Western, let's say, that where we will see some compromises from the United States in terms of regulation, but regulation will also be core. Um, there will be similarities across those two, those two models. And the similarity will be that the government needs to sit at the top and we're going to see a more centralized form of governance and more top-down control. Uh, and the difference, of course, will be we are democratic and you are not. The one thing that everybody, I really, and I hope that you know um, uh, the listeners, the audience understands clearly is that the global, the infrastructure that will, let me rephrase this, the infrastructure that is able to support global communications will always exist. We've created the internet. It's not that suddenly tomorrow we can uncreate it. The internet is there. The infrastructure is there. We know how networks spread across the globe can communicate with one another. We have that interoperability. But I think that we are going to see less and less interoperability. And that is because um, you cannot be discussing these days the internet without taking into account the current geopolitical shifts and the current and the reality. And the current geopolitical reality is that countries do not want to collaborate. Uh, Everybody's looking, you know, internally, they're looking inwards. And unfortunately, the internet is in the middle of that because it is all about collaboration. If you don't collaborate in the internet, you don't have the internet. The internet is purely an outcome and its evolution was based on collaboration. So it's going to be a tricky, I think it's going to be tricky. We're going to have a, a rough ride. And there's going to be a fight for the one global and open internet for sure in the next few years. So, Julia, do you agree that there's going to be this fight which is tearing the fabric of the internet apart? I agree that the the internet, well, is already vulcanized and it will continue along that trajectory. I think what will be interesting is um, the kind of size of these vulcanized internets and how effective um, the US and its allies and China are at wooing other countries to be more aligned with their visions. Yes. Julia Constantinos, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. That was really fun. 
you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Julie Vu and Konstantinos Komaitis. Also thanks to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kuang, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Septanta. Bye for now.